0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 385 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in Three Little Things, the writer Anna Wilson and our host Julia Copus speak about three objects that have a special significance in Anna's writing life. And Anna passes on three of her top writing tips.
1: Welcome to episode three of the Three Little Things podcast from the Royal Literary Fund, in which we talk with writers about their work and writing life through the medium of three objects that have particular significance for them. We also ask our guests to offer up three pieces of advice that might be a help to you in your own writing journey. And today's guest is the writer Anna Wilson. Anna studied French and German at Cambridge University and began her career as a picture book editor at Macmillan Children's Books. She has now published over 50 books for children and young teens, including picture books, short stories, poems, fiction series and non-fiction titles. Her books have been chosen for World Book Day and the Richard and Judy Book Club, And her most recent book for children is The Wide Wide Sea, a picture book about our relationship with the ocean and our responsibilities towards keeping it clean. As well as writing for young people, Anna has also published a memoir for adult readers, A Place for Everything, My Mother, Autism and Me. And that is the book that she'll be talking to us about today. Professor Tony Atwood, the world expert on autism in women, has called the book a seminal work in this area. It was also editor's choice in the bookseller magazine where it was described as a vividly told and profoundly affecting memoir. And it was featured on BBC Woman's Hour. Anna is currently working on her first novel for adult readers. She lives in Cornwall. Anna, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, Your memoir, A Place for Everything, has a a long and interesting genesis, doesn't it? If I've got this right, you started keeping a journal in 2013. That journal then became a blog, which you wrote in the wake of your father's death, with the excellent title, Good Grief. Um, (laughs) Why did you decide to start the blog, and how did it eventually lead to the memoir?
2: Yeah, you know, that's such a hard question to answer, really, because I just sort of did it. (laughs) I just, I got up, it was actually the morning of the anniversary of dad calling me to say that he had only three months left to live. And I just woke up and thought a year ago, you know, I had that phone call and dad had had passed away by then. And I just felt I needed to mark that day because for anyone else, it wasn't an important day. You know, people expect you to mark the anniversary of the death itself, but actually... 27th of April 2015 was um yeah a day I'll never forget because I was actually at my desk writing as well when he phoned me. So um, it felt appropriate to write (laughs) on the anniversary of that day. Um, But yeah, you're right. It had started in a journal. So I guess the journal was for me and it was very much an outpouring that, I mean, it wouldn't be readable to most other people, but the blog, I just wanted to craft something, I suppose, just to mark the day. So it sounds like that was
1: the initial kind of reaching out towards a wider audience than just yourself, I guess
2: yes and i and i wasn't really thinking at all at that point about publication because i'd only written for children up to that point anyway but i suppose yes that that act of memorializing means that you want to reach
1: out to others doesn't it because you want them to sort of join yeah, in, in that so. moment yeah yeah uh, so your memoir is essentially the story of your mother's life uh lived with undiagnosed autism until a, a very late diagnosis at the age of 72. But in a broader sense, the book is also about what it means for many of us to care for our parents in their final years. And I can relate, as many people will, to that tension that you describe so well in the book between uh, sort of daughterly or or sonly responsibility (laughs) um, and the desire not to have your life taken over uh, by Hmm. caring Now there were a couple of key moments along the way um, and one of the most significant moments seems to have been a conversation that you had with a man from Age UK. How did you find him um, and why was that particular meeting so helpful?
2: Yeah, I was extremely fortunate. Um, Actually, it was because of Facebook, which played quite an interesting role in the whole of that episode of my life. (laughs) Um, I'd only ever used Facebook to post silly things, as most people do. and I was getting absolutely to the end of my tether with not being able to find the right care for mum and dad I Mm -hmm. I just seemed to be banging my head against a brick wall um saying the same things over and over again to the health workers and not seeming to get any response Mm -hmm. and that was basically that my dad was dying of cancer and my mum at that point was under um mental health care because we didn't realize she had autism so she was Mm -hmm. um under sort of crisis mental health care. So you knew there was
1: something wrong but just not what it was?
2: Yeah, so she'd, had, she'd been diagnosed with depression and general anxiety disorder, which are, you know, bona fide mental health conditions. But I just felt there was something much more deep-seated that was underlying those things, that they were symptomatic, if you like, of something else. Yeah. Um, and she really wasn't coping unless Dad was there all the time. Mm. And Dad, at this point, was in hospital, um, and was about to have his leg amputated because the cancer had spread so badly that that was the only way to deal with it. And I was just trying to persuade the hospital not to discharge him straight back into a house where my mother was just not coping. Mm -hmm. Um, And they just kept saying, well, he says your mother's his carer. And that just made no sense to me because I said, well, actually, he's her carer, but I didn't really have the vocabulary. So in an absolute fit of desperation, I just put on Facebook, I can't understand how difficult it can be for the healthcare officials to understand this or, you know, words to that effect. And one of my friends messaged me and said, I've got a friend who works for Age UK who used to be a social worker. I think he'd be a really good person for you to speak to. And I gave him a ring and he was just like an angel
0: <laughs> he was yeah, just,
2: yeah. not only did he have all the answers and all the reassurance and the calm that I needed yes but he also gave me the vocabulary which as a writer I, I just found it so interesting that I, I need the right language to yes. be able to communicate
1: to these people uh, you know and um, as you say in the book I think what happens if people just don't find the right words don't get told what those are
2: Oh yes, I mean, it, that really, even at the time I remember thinking, how on earth are you supposed to navigate this if English isn't your first language, or if yeah. you're not confident, or if you have social anxiety yourself, or any, any other reason that you wouldn't be able to navigate this situation yeah, yeah. without having the right
1: vocabulary. Yeah. Well, sounds like a desperate situation, and uh, he does sound like a, an angel. <laughs> okay, well, it's time for your first object. Um, And this is one that you talk about in the memoir, isn't it? And that relates, I think, specifically to your father. Yes. Tell us what it is and what, what it means to you. Yeah, so it's um a picture book called
2: Martin the Kingfisher and it's well it to me it's very old. I think it was published in the 30s and written by a French writer who went by the name of Père Castor, which means father beaver.
1: <laughs> yes, I think uh, listeners can see this and uh, it does look fairly old. Um yes. the spine's quite frayed, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so it was um it's got a sort of a cardboard cover and the illustrations are um black and white, charcoal and pencil mostly but then Mm. occasionally you get sort of coloured plates and it's called Martin the Kingfisher and it is about... the the life cycle of a kingfisher it's what we would now call narrative non-fiction because it is told as a story but Mm. it's very accurate to the natural history of the bird and when i open the front cover it says from mama christmas 1949 which would have been my father's fourth christmas i think oh um yeah so very personal to him because he was called martin
1: So she obviously saw that book and thought, oh, he'll like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think it came into your life at a significant uh, point, didn't it? Or re-entered your life.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't remember looking at it as a child, to be honest, but um, I must have done. But yes, I I found it. It was the night that my dad had come back from hospital, having had his leg amputated. Mm -hmm. And he had actually discharged himself because he was so desperate to get home. And then he called me and realised he needed help. So I drove from Wiltshire to Kent (laughs) to -hmm. be there. And it was a really stressful evening because it was, it was just so full of motion. I was so happy to see him happy to be home and at the same time, absolutely furious with him for having discharged himself yeah, of with course. no care. Yeah. Um, and I spent about three hours trying to get him to bed because I realized that actually, he, even though he'd lost a lot of weight, he was still quite a big man and I couldn't get him in and out of bed very easily. And he couldn't really do it himself with only one leg. So it took us a long time to get him ready for bed and when I finally got him into bed I just felt this overwhelming urge to treat him like a little boy because he just looked like a little boy all tucked up neatly in his pyjamas.
1: I can see why why this relates to that particular object, so he's gone back in your mind in a way to his own boyhood. Yeah. Um, And I I said
2: to him, I gave him a kiss and I said, would you like a bedtime story? Almost as a joke. Mm. And he actually said, oh, yes, please. And then I got a bit embarrassed and sort of said, oh, night, night. And then I went upstairs and found this book in the bookshelf. By then he'd fallen asleep. And I just thought, oh, I should have read him a bedtime story.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And in a rather lovely way, I think, it's also inspired a whole new strand of your own writing for children, hasn't it? This book.
2: Yeah, so um, that night I sat on the floor and read the book and thought actually how amazingly similar the life cycle of a kingfisher is to my mum and dad's marriage because they do mate and then stay with each other.
1: Mm.
2: And so I started a whole sort of train of thought really in terms of my writing. So I I wrote about it in the eulogy that I gave for dad and then Mm. three years later for mum. And I started thinking there's a story here that I could write. So I did write a picture book about... The life cycle of a kingfisher mm. and it is now going to be published by nosy crow and illustrated by sarah massini so that's very exciting mm. so i think that book really inspired my change of direction in my writing so i was always writing fiction before i came across martin the kingfisher and then i i started writing non-fiction so i've written grandpa and the kingfisher which is um And well, it's it's technically a narrative non-fiction book about the life cycle of a kingfisher, but it's also a little story about a grandpa and um, how he sadly dies at the end as well. So it's a bit of a story and a bit of fact about the kingfisher. And the editor I sent it to then encouraged me to write a nature almanac. So I now seem
1: to be writing more non-fiction than fiction. (laughs) Excellent. Well, so it's only near the end of your memoir. It's about five chapters from the end, isn't it? Um, During a meeting with a psychologist after your father's death, it's only then that you first hear the suggestion that your mum might be on the autistic spectrum. Mm. What difference do you think it would have made to have this diagnosis earlier in your life? Hmm...
2: Well, I like to think it would have made a difference, but ultimately any diagnosis is no good on its own Mm. because you need the support and the care that comes with that and an understanding as well, not just sort of around the individual, but from the individual. So Mm. whether mum would actually have ever accepted that diagnosis is the first thing I question Mm. um, because she was very proud of her intellect.
1: Yeah, so she was a Cambridge graduate like you, wasn't she? Yeah, she
2: studied classics at Cambridge and really sort of overcame an awful lot of obstacles to get there Mm. and was incredibly bright and yes she would have fought against any suggestion that there was anything wrong with her mind I mean this happened later when people were talking about her mental health she always said
1: there's nothing wrong with my mind it's such (laughs) a shame that to make the mistake that mental health and intelligence are connected oh of course yeah but I think
2: for that generation there was an awful lot of shame really associated with with mental health you know so for her to have to face that there was something different about her. I think it would have had to have been worded in a particular way for her to be able to accept it. But if she had, and if she had had the support that we hope autistic people get with, you know, as as concerns learning coping mechanisms and so on, then it could have made a huge difference. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think things are a lot better now than they would have been, you know, when your mother was certainly younger. Um, So your first object has a strong connection with both your father and your career. It's Mm. time now to reveal your second. What is it?
2: Uh, Well, it's also really connected to my career, (laughs) Um, although it does come from my childhood this time. So this is the Puffin Post magazine. And it's um, an edition in 1981 when I would have been 11. It's a very sweet looking magazine, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's very much of its time with this very sort of chunky bubble writing that we all loved in the 80s yeah. with lots of sort of rainbow colours in and it. And the, the
1: little puffins with sort of speech bubbles coming out of their mouths and one of them saying, yes. is this our own lost world? <laughs> yes, yes, or somebody else's. <laughs> yeah, <With Preston>. good
2: <laughs> I absolutely loved The Puffin Club, which was set up by Kay Webb, who was the publisher of Puffin Books. I was really lucky because my parents just, I don't think I found out about it. I think they must have read the end of a Puffin book and discovered that The Puffin Club existed and thought, oh gosh, you know, this will keep Anna quiet because she goes through so many books.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, did you meet anyone famous?
2: I did. Um, I met Joan Aiken, who was an incredible influence on me and still is really on my writing cause she wrote fantastic adventure stories, my favourite being The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Um, but I also met Roald Dahl at the same convention. That's amazing. <laughs> and I still have both their autographs in a little autograph book, which I take around schools and I show children now. And when I show them the Roald Dahl autograph, they can't believe no. it. No. Um, it's like royalty, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. But it is quite funny. He was quite terrifying and he spelt my name wrong. And when I told him he'd spelt it wrong, he was quite grumpy about it. He'd written Anne and he screwed an A over the E. (laughs) It was a bit of a mess.
1: (laughs) What a shame for you. Did you come away sort of feeling less enthusiastic about him or...? No, I didn't feel less enthusiastic about him,
2: but I think it's testament to my... Because I started off as an editor before I became published writer. Yes. And um, I think it's a testament to my rather pernickety editor's brain yeah. that I had the guts to say to Roald Dahl, you've spelt my name wrong.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting, though, the difference between a person as a writer and a person as a person. And does that matter? And, and so on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So... A Place for Everything ends with a very moving letter to your mother in which you describe, I suppose, some of the ordinary joys of your life, you know, sort of summer walks with your new puppy um, and so on. And a letter in which you address your mother's idea of you of living too much in your head. So the question I wanted to ask is, how did your mum's death affect the way that you think about life do you think oh gosh that's a difficult question (laughs) but it's a good one
2: um oh i think it's affected me so deeply it's bound to isn't it i mean Mm. i think um it's made me more conscious of my place in nature than i've ever been before because i really do see myself as having this one chance of being here And that, you know, physically I'll go back into nature, Mm. as it were. But I'm actually in nature all the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it
1: does make perfect sense, especially as you live in Cornwall now, don't you?
2: Yes, so we moved to Cornwall shortly after mum died. It was always a sort of a plan that we would do that. But you certainly feel very much a part of things here. I mean, today, there's been the most incredible rainstorm and and you you can't escape it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think partly that. I think also that... you know you do have only one chance to have a go at what you want to do so i am sort of pushing myself with my writing more than i've probably done before um and and i'm saying yes to as many things as i can new experiences and um throwing myself into things more than perhaps I did before mm. because I probably wanted things to be too perfect before and now I'm just having a go at everything <laughs> so I've, I've started learning how to surf which is absolutely hilarious because I can't do oh, it brilliant. it's good fun
1: <laughs> so do you think your mum was right in some way that you you were living too much in your head was there some truth in that
2: I think I've always lived too much in my head. And I I still get that leveled at me by my family as well. I think they've just about got to the point where they understand now that if I'm in the kitchen making a cup of tea, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm in the kitchen making a cup of tea. I might be, you know, in Panama walking along the canal. (laughs) And I think partly it's because of having a mother with undiagnosed autism, because one of the things that used to happen with mum is that she would have what I now understand to be autistic meltdowns. Mm where she would have had a day that had just been too overwhelming for her for whatever reason and she would fly into a rage Mm. Um, and it was so destabilizing because you never quite knew when she would fly into a rage so you might have been out with her at someone's house having tea and she'd have been sweetness and light and a wonderful guest. And then something would trigger something, you know, once we got home and she would fly into a rage. And so my sister and I would scuttle off to our rooms and keep out of the way.
1: I was going to say there's a a very scary bit in your memoir where you you spill some ink on a green carpet Mm. and it's so well described. That fear that you've just told us about is really communicated in that description Mm. of that particular incident. so i guess that's the kind of moment that you're talking about
2: yes that's right and actually in that moment i was in my room writing in my diary because that's how i sort of learned mm. at an early age to sort of work things out for myself and then i managed to spill ink on the carpet and that set off a rage but it could be something even less significant than that so mm. i think the way i survived was to stay in my room and read and write and then you do end up being in your head yeah you do take yourself
1: elsewhere yes OK, well, it's time to reveal your third and final object now. What is it, Anna, and what's its significance? So it is a little ceramic oast house. So for those of you who don't
2: know what an oast house is, it is a house that was built to dry out hops for beer making. Mm. And it's very um, typical um, of Kent um, I'm not sure if you find them anywhere else. I think the they're associated
1: particularly with Kent, aren't they? I think so. Mm.
2: So they're round buildings with a little sort of steeple-like roof yeah. and then a white um, top, which is called a cowl.
1: Oh, is it always the white then?
2: That's yeah, one... ah, it's always white. Yeah. Um, I think you can get square roast houses as well, but I remember as a child thinking only the round ones were the real <laughs> ones. <laughs> yeah. And the hops would be put in the sort of steeple bit and um, and that's where they would dry And I, as a child, I just adored them and I was desperate to live in one. And mum would always say, well, it wouldn't work because where would you put the bed? You know, the the, the walls aren't flat, which is actually quite an autistic kind of reaction. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's not logical to have a house that's round. Why would you want to live in it? It wasn't built for that. Um, But anyway, I loved them. And um, there was one near my grandmother's house that had been turned into a cafe and it had painted on its... Little roof, the words oceans of cream.
1: Brilliant. Yeah. And my
2: sister and I just loved this idea that this house was full of oceans of cream, which of course it wasn't, it was just cream teas. But uh, yeah. we both had very imaginations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it means a lot to me because of Kent and also my grandmother who lived nearby. So Yeah, who
1: and she and you were particularly close to her, aren't you?
2: Mm, yeah so she was my maternal grandmother and she was also really my mother she really sort of helped mm. enormously in bringing me and my sister up mm. we Used to go there every day so um sometimes stay the night and so on
1: well listen i wish we had time to speak in in a lot more depth because this is so interesting but i think because of time i should ask you at this point um if you have any bits of advice for us that you think could be useful to pass on to someone who might be interested in writing, I was gonna say in in your genre, but you've got several genres, Um, or just writing in general, things that you wish you had known when you first started out? Hmm. Um,
2: Well, my first tip is something I suppose I did know in a sort of subliminal way, which is to keep a notebook or a diary, because I've done this ever since I was seven. And, um, and, and people call it morning pages and journaling, don't they? But for yes. me, it was just writing a little diary. And it it was my way of, as I say, making sense of the world, um, coping with strong emotions. You know, if I had a, a particular sort of outburst about something, I would usually write it down and then feel better rather than scream and shout mm, <laughs> or, mm, or whatever. Mm. Um, and also, it's just really useful writing practice. I mean, I think I taught myself how to be a writer by writing every day. Um, and you can see there, it's quite amusing going back and seeing where I've tried purple prose and I've tried a bit yeah. of poetry
1: and I've tried these different things. Um, yeah, because it's important to find out what doesn't work as well, hmm. isn't it? Yes.
2: Yes, and definitely sometimes you'd read it back and think, oh my goodness, you sound really pompous. Why have you written that?
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so it's it's a handy, like a rough book, really, a sort of a sketchbook where you just try things out.
1: And I suppose in the case of your memoir, if you hadn't been keeping um, a journal when your parents were were ill you might never have gone on to write the memoir
2: no that's right because i i actually was quite faithful to my journal in many ways i transcribed conversations that i'd had Mm. with my sister and my uncle and the care workers and so on Although it's interesting because even in the gap between experiencing something and writing it down, obviously your memory is only as good as it can be on any given Mm. occasion. And there was one time where I'd written something about dad giving us a bottle of wine and us noticing afterwards that the label said optimist. And we were sort of laughing about, well, not laughing really, just sort of thinking how lovely that was that dad could be such an optimist (laughs) at a time like that. And I got the type of wine wrong. My sister said, oh, it wasn't, you know, what you said it was. It was this other type of wine. And I'd noted it down wrong in my journal.
1: Oh, right. So even that recent memory was, uh, was mistaken.
2: Yeah, I think I was so focused on the label and the name yeah. that I hadn't really paid
1: attention to what kind
2: of wine it was. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so keep a journal. Um, anything yeah. else? I think carve out writing time because you know one of the
2: things that students say to me when i'm teaching creative writing is you know how do you find the time to write when you've got a job and you've got children and you've got elderly parents whatever it is yeah and i think you do have to treat it like a job i think you have to carve out the time so Mm. if you know you've only got three days a week well you know realistically you're not going to spend every single hour of those three days but maybe say you'll do every morning Mm. or whatever it is and i found during lockdown actually um logging on to a writer's room on the internet and just sitting and writing with other writers was a brilliant way of keeping myself on track
1: you know tell us about this um so this is a sort of online type of salon or something is it
2: yes that's right so um, i'm I'm sure there's probably lots of them now but it was quite innovative at the time it was um the london writers salon Mm. And they had always run things in London. So they'd run talks and masterclasses and things and um, had networking events for writers. And then lockdown happened and suddenly they were running this experiment of you click on a link at eight o'clock in the morning, you join a Zoom room with lots of other writers and you just sit and write for 50 minutes.
1: That sounds Um, really excellent. I might look into that myself, in fact.
2: (laughs) Oh, I really recommend it. It's become so popular now. They're running it all around the world. So it's 8 a.m in the different time zones around the world. That is
1: fantastic. Um, and do you have a third piece of advice for us?
2: Yeah, I would say make sure you get outside if you can every day even if it's just for 20 minutes so if you've got a a lunch break you know it's so tempting to either work through lunch or just go and sit in a cafe or something but i would say go outside and even if it's raining like it has today (laughs) Mm, mm. put your hood up and stomp through it and you just feel better and it really does clear your head
1: yeah i think that's a really good one um, and very important for us solitary writers mm-hmm. um, but in terms of exercise I find having a dog very useful and she, she tears me away from my desk for a, a longish walk every day so uh, that's useful yeah.
2: exactly
1: well Anna thank you so much for sharing your story and your expertise with us today it's been a real pleasure thank you it's been good fun thank you for having me
0: That was Anna Wilson speaking with Julia Copus. You can find out more about Anna on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 385, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 386, in Location and the Writer, Linda Hoy is inspired by the Peak District National Park and Jonathan Edwards shares his love of Newport. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.